This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Walter Isaacson was the editor-in-chief of Time magazine and the CEO of CNN, but he's best known to the public for his incredible biographies, including Leonardo da Vinci, Albert Einstein and Steve Jobs. He's also the official biographer of Elon Musk and shadowed Musk through the saga of his purchase of Twitter. He joined us in London last week for a conversation with one of Fleet Street's finest. Matthew Dancona. Walter, I want to dive straight in with what strikes me as one of the most, well, one of the fundamental and perhaps the fundamental question about Elon Musk, which is, which concerns his often brutal upbringing in South Africa and its impact upon him. Tell us about the early years and why they're so important. You know, when he grew up in South Africa, it was a very violent period. Uh, he would go to the, as a kid, to the anti-apartheid concerts with his brother. And the door of the train would open, and he saw somebody with a knife in his head. And he said that the blood on the soles of his shoes was sticky all that night. And it said it taught him how to deal with adversity. He was somebody who was socially awkward, and I mean that in the extreme. He talks about having Asperger's, but it's basically an autism dis- a spectrum disorder where he had no friends at all, and he was very bad at emotional input-output. Until uh, so he was beaten up on the playground all the time. Seriously, as I well. mean, seriously, beaten up once where they pushed him down the concrete steps and bloodied his face so much his brother said he couldn't recognize him, and he was in the hospital for only almost a week. But that was mild compared to the scars that were psychological from his father, because when he came home from the hospital, his father made him stand upright for a couple of hours and berated him and took the side of the boy who had beaten him up and told Elon, you'll never amount to anything, you're a loser, it's your fault. And Musk kind of retreats into the corner of the library and bookstore reading the X-Man comics like a geek and sci-fi and begins to just will himself and imagine himself as a Captain Underpants superhero. He said that the uh, superheroes in the comics wanted to save the world, but they wore their underpants on the outside. And he said that made them look ridiculous. And then he paused and he said, but they were trying to save the world. And in some ways that's ingrained in him 
as he escapes South Africa at age 17 and comes to North America, that he's going to have these grand missions, but he struggles with the demons of his childhood. And sometimes, we all have some demons, but either the, you harness those demons into drives or those demons harness you. And it's his mom, Mema, said, the thing you have to figure out is the danger that Elon becomes his father. Yes. And is the oldest With whom he shares a birthday. Yeah, and they share this Jekyll and Hyde quality where people say, do you like Elon Musk? And so it depends on which Elon you catch. I mean, Grimes, <laughs> his girlfriend, says, there are many Elon Musk I love, but there's one that I really hate and who hates me. And she calls that demon mode. Demon mode. It's interesting you mentioned demon mode because there's a... There are, there's a sort of curious mixture of, of often quite endearing juvenile goofiness and what you call the demon mode uh, aggression. And I, I wonder, is this actually a man who's 52 now, but who's still essentially captive to, in his childhood? He's still stuck in his childhood. Yes, uh, we ta- the, uh, he's a man-child, would you yeah. call him? And Tallulah Riley, the English actress, had dinner with her last night because she was a great source for the Married book. to him twice. Married to him twice, which says something. Um, <laughs> uh, but there is a man-child quality to him where he's extremely impetuous and juvenile and funny and silly. I don't know if you'll take this as an insult, but his uh, preferred form of humor is Monty Python skits, yes. which he, at the darkest moments when he's gone totally cold on somebody... I can see when demon mode's coming on. I can see what's going to trick. But then I can also see he'll snap out of it, like Mr. Hyde will to Dr. Jekyll, and he'll pull out his phone and watch the Ministry of Silly Walks skit or some Monty Python skit. It's a very, um, there's a whole series of pathologies in, involved, which um, you deal with in the book. One of the, the themes is, is that there are intimations of greatness from a very early stage. You mentioned him sitting, reading comics in the, uh, in the bookstore. Scroll forward a little to when he marries Justine Wilson in 2000, and you know, meant to be a hugely romantic occasion, obviously their wedding, and his sweet nothing is he whispers into his new bride's ear at the wedding, remember, I am the alpha in this relationship. Yeah. This, this, is, this is not usual behavior, is it? No, and that's not the most unusual part. No, by no means. Which is, as uh, uh, Justine, that wife, said, uh, he associates pain and drama with childhood love. Yep. And because his childhood was filled with pain and drama and a psychologically uh, complex, let's say, father. And so all of his relationships, except the one with Tallulah, was overdramatic, you know, filled with fighting and pain and insults both ways. Uh, he once said to Grimes, who is on again, off again now, mother of three of his children, uh, you have to keep fat shaming me. Uh, you're not. You're being too nice to me. So this compulsion that when things are going well, like when I began working on this book, he had just become FT's Person of the Year and Times Person of the Year. I say FT because Jillian is there, so I give it for his billing 
uh, over the time area where I used to work. But he had then become the richest person on earth. He had sold a million electric vehicles when all other car companies were getting out of it. And he had been able to shoot off rockets that got things into orbit and landed upright and he could reuse them. And I'm saying, man, this is, and I'm thinking, okay, great, mm-hmm. easy book to write. Uh, and he said, no, I always am heading into the storm. I need something more. I said, well, what, what you talking about? He said, well, I'm buying Twitter. I mean, he's allergic to contentment, isn't he? He's allergic to contentment. What a good line. That There's an aversion to the sense of smelling the flowers. Yeah. Somebody was telling me, was it you back about psychological safety they were writing about? Uh, not me. No, no. Oh, yes, you were. Uh, <laughs> good to see you. Uh, he walks into Twitter headquarters. I know we're jumping ahead of the game here. And it's one of those really wonderful work environments with yoga studios and artisanal coffee bars and rooms where you can have quiet mental space. And stay woke t-shirts. Stay woke t-shirts. Yeah. And they tell him, we want this to be a place of psychological safety. And he gives me that raspy laugh and says, psychological safety is our enemy. Yeah. We need an all-in intensity. Hard, and hardcore Hardcore all-in intensity. And he is a person who, if he is sailing towards psychological complacency, will tack the boat radically in a different direction. He corrects, overcorrects. You mentioned he's the world's richest person, $217 billion, according to Forbes this month. And obviously it's idle to deny that he loves the money and the freedom and power that comes with extreme wealth, but... I'm sorry, you say deny? No, I mean, it would be idle to say otherwise. He obviously likes the... But what I was going to ask you was... I'm going to push back on that. uh, Well, I was going to push back on my own premise, which was... I'm having it's a, a conversation. Walter, I'm having a conversation with myself here. Don't worry. Yeah. Um, I've gone into demon mode. Um, <laughs> there's a, there's a, you describe a fascinating encounter with Bill Gates, which is the reason I raised his mm-hmm. wealth. And Gates has shorted Tesla stock. Driving Elon. Uh, for financial reasons. You know, he simply said, oh, you know, it was a financial decision. And Musk finds this a totally inadequate explanation. Yeah, he calls him an asshole. And that's, I spoke yeah. to him, and, and Gates had come to say, can you be involved in climate change, yeah. you know, foundational work? And Musk says, I'm fine, but I think I'm doing more for climate change by having my money invested in Tesla, by moving us into the era of EVs. It's a lot more than your foundation will ever do. And then he says, are you shorting the stock? And Gates sort of pauses and says, yes. And so this is at the Tesla factory in Texas. He kicks him out. Gates, being clueless, um, about a month later, texts him from, uh, and says, I now have some plans to show you to prove how it could be effective. And uh, Musk just sends a quick note back, a text message, which he, you know, screenshots and sending to me in real time, saying, are you still shorting the stock? And Gates, I happen to know, because I interviewed him later, is in a hotel breakfast room with his son, Rory, a young son who also has the emotional receptors of these people, meaning a little clueless in terms of how to deal with people. And he says, well, just say yes, but then go right on to talk about that. And that's what Gates does. And Musk says, you're an asshole and won't deal with him. I then interview Bill and say, okay, I get it, but why, were you, why are you shorting Tesla stock? And he 
goes through the number of electric vehicles that could be built, the demand, the lithium supply, you know, all this bullshit, and explains that he thinks the stock is overvalued. And I nod, and I say, yes, but why are you shorting the stock? Now, of course, he then thinks I'm an idiot because he thinks he has just explained why he's shorting yeah. it. But I finally said to him, do you need more money? I mean, it, it, it is such a different mindset that he would you know, care about doing that in order to make more money. And Musk, at a certain point, when he becomes the richest person, has, and excuse me if I'm jumping around too much, but his firstborn surviving child, named after his favorite character in the X-Men comics, Xavier, sends a message saying, I'm transitioning and my new name is Jenna. So this causes Musk to, he gets his head around it. He's not so bad mm. about it. But then she becomes a very anti-capitalist, very woke, hates wealth, hates billionaires, and berates him and cha changes her last name. Won't speak to him because he's a capitalist billionaire. So Musk sells all five of his houses and decides not to ever spend money on any luxuries for himself as if trying to make it up to Jenna. So he does not savor, I mean, this gets back to the premise, he, he is the richest person and he does the least to savor it. He lives in a two-bedroom house in Texas, has no yachts, no vacations, and it is this weird childhood pain is my goal. He's an ascetic in some ways, isn't he? I mean, he, one doesn't want to exaggerate that. I mean, he lives a, a, a very comfortable life. Well, the of one course. thing he has is a jet. Yeah. I mean, and, uh, but he's, Which is amazing. But he doesn't have housing. I mean, he sleeps on the jet going from place to place. And in the office. All, on all the factory frequent. floor, there's a place at the Tesla, both Tesla factories. Uh, a little, he doesn't even have an office really, but there's a cubicle and he tends to sleep under the desk. So, now, he's also the world's richest couch surfer. When he's in San Francisco, he'll go, he used yeah. to sleep at Larry Page's house in Palo Alto, but now they don't speak to each other because they had the feud over artificial intelligence. But he's always staying at people's houses. Extraordinary. It's also because he said his greatest fear since he was a child is being lonely. Yes. And he doesn't want to be in a hotel room alone. It's, it, I mean, the, the fascinating aspect of his character is that he is truly singular. He is exceptional and to, to a yeah. mind-boggling extent. But he, what he needs is company, you know, and, and the, the family that is often disaggregated and often dysfunctional, he needs it around him. He needs Kimball, his brother. He needs... Well, he the, needs X, too. three-year-old now... He came here two weeks ago to visit your prime minister and had dinner and a few things. And he brought X, the three-year-old, yeah. with him at all times to the restaurant, to down and to wherever the meeting was. And it's almost like he always has to have one of his children, he has 10 surviving children, one of his children with him at all times. It's interesting that encounter with uh, Rishi Sunak at Lancaster House because yeah. rather like Justine there was no question who the alpha in that exchange was it was very interesting to watch because Musk really did you know look about 20 foot tall compared to, to yeah he him. tends to fill a room he, uh, he uh, 
is very passionate on AI safety and yeah. became rather, I won't go too far, but rather respectful of your prime minister for taking it that seriously. Yeah, and bringing in China and so forth. Yeah. Um, you, Walter, you list his six companies right now, which are Tesla, SpaceX, it's Starlink, uh, Offshoot, Twitter Stroke X, the boring company, which is a construction and infrastructure uh, business, Neuralink and XAI. This is so much, uh, too much really. And you, you quote a, a text he sent you where, so where he says that he's burning the candle at both ends with a flamethrower, <laughs> which is funny, uh, as well as quite sad. Python humor. Again, it is yeah. very, very Pythonesque. Is, is this the burden of someone who is just addicted to the impossible, to permanent crisis. You know, he said that his worldview is shaped by video games. When 12, he writes Blastar, does yeah. it in his own C++ coding that he taught himself in South Africa. And he will, just as some of us look at our phones all the time, or it, at all moments, he's likely to be pulling out his phone and playing a video game. Uh, very geeky. And he gets to a level of the game. He loves games. I can see a few people out who would know these. Uh, you know, Polytopia and um, Elden Ring. Elden Ring, yes. Yeah, where you have to get to a level, and then you go through hell to get to it. But if you really want to put all your chips back in, you try to get to the next level. And that's what happened last April, or April a year ago, when he was thinking of buying Twitter. He uh, just felt he had to go to the next level of the game, and he went to Hawaii, couch surfing on Larry Ellison's place to meet somebody he was dating, then goes to Vancouver afterwards where Grimes is there with Young X. Uh, and they stay up, Grimes and Elon, till 5.30 in the morning, because Elden Ring had just come out and he had downloaded it. And he had to get through the up to the last layer and make it through. And he gets through at 5.30 a.m., Vancouver time. And at 5.35, he sends out a message, I made an offer. That's when he buys Twitter on an impulse. But he had to get the game out of the way first, which is the interesting Yeah, and, but it's all part of the game. It's and going the, to Twitter is like yeah. having six companies, I now need to do the same. Yes, I now need to complicate things. There's a... Complicate my book, too. Com yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm I mean... I'm some rocket dude yeah. making electric cars. That must cars have been an interesting day for like, you. Okay, now we got... Now we got it. A tiger by the tail, yeah. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I mean, that, on which note, there's a, throughout the book, there's a fascinatingly direct 
read across in Musk's psyche from the world of the imagination to what he wants the real world to be like. So you deal with his citation of Isaac Asimov's Law of Robotics, Ian um, e. M. Banks' wonderful culture series and what that means about AI. And above all, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which he, has kind of scriptural significance right. for him. How porous is the partition that separates fantasy from reality for Elon Musk? I mean, does it exist at all? Well, first of all, thank you. You've read the book more carefully than almost any other interviewer. And you're a great interviewer. And that is a very good question, is the porousness between the fantasy world he retreated into at age 12 by reading Ian, well, not Ian Banks, but Isaac Asimov, Isaac Asimov Douglas yeah. Adams' his Hitchhiker's Guide. Uh, and it becomes the missions that get imprinted upon him, which is from Hitchhiker's Guide, and uh, it's we have to be multiplanetary, yeah. otherwise consciousness may not survive. There may be something happened to this planet. And the reason there's not any evidence of consciousness anywhere in the universe, he's convinced, is because consciousness, when it existed, never became multiplanetary, and it got destroyed. So we have to be the first to do that. You and I don't, I mean, with all due respect, we don't wake up in the morning worrying about this. You know, not the, really, no. Not consciousness <laughs> being wiped out before. <laughs> but he does, from Hitchhiker's Guide, and secondly, sustainability of life on this planet with EVs and solar roofs and battery packs. And then thirdly, as you said, Asimov's Law. He read those robot books. And the first law, well, the zeroth law, is the most important, which is no robot shall ever harm humanity. Yeah. And it's like, well, who's going to make sure of that? And this is why he started OpenAI, I mean, in the famous things this past weekend, with Sam Altman, breaks with Sam Altman, has been part of this power struggle all weekend, and has started his own rival AI company because he believes that Sam Altman, instead of having OpenAI as a nonprofit, has made it a closed thing for profit, and he's still worried about what Isaac Asimov said are the possibilities that the robots will turn upon us. And it is, uh, Musk's interest in AI is, is different, isn't it, to Sam Altman's? I mean, he, he, he likes the physical. He's looking, you know... He's well, he more... believes in the real-world yeah. AI. And what you're seeing now, and everybody's going gaga over, are large-language model, generative, you know, uh, predictive uh, models that take text, and you can, it's a really great parlor trick, and probably very important economically, you can say, who were the five best popes, or what are the five best, and it will answer you and chat with you, but chatbots to him are a first little step. Yeah. What he wants is real world AI, which is Optimus. sentient Optimus the robot, which he's building, Beautiful picture in the book, if I may mm. say so, of little X touching the hand of Optimus the robot. And Optimus the robot then taking the hands and forming a heart. Robots that have sentience. Cars that can drive. Factories that can run themselves. And he says that's the big leap. He has, when he bought Twitter, when he decided to buy Twitter... He hadn't thought of this, but I was with him when it finally dawns on him. 
which is AI is only as powerful as the data upon which it can train. And he said, what's the best data feed for the real world hive mind in real time of humanity? Well, it's the eight billion tweets a week. So he takes the API for that, closes it off, and he has sole access to the Twitter feed to train his AI. What's the best real world AI? It's eight billion frames a day of video from Tesla cars, each of which has eight cameras, all coming back to a central computer where he can see real world navigation. So in that context, there are a number of messianic moments in the book. And one that struck me was he's um, describing a possible Neuralink project, which will enable potentially the disabled to walk. And he says it's Jesus level. Um, Then, and this seems to me to get to the heart of the matter, he immediately undercuts the whole thing by riffing on the the famous life of Brian, ex-leper scene, where Michael Palin complains that Jesus has taken away his livelihood. Exactly. So you've got the goofy, the messianic... I was a perfect leper, and all of a sudden this guy kills me. Not so much as a violin. So (laughs) the question is, you've got goofy and messianic. Yeah. Are both personas real? Probably, and is one dominant? You know, it's a really good question, and I remember that moment where, first of all, let me say, what he does is he has grand messianic visions, get humanity to Mars, and then backfills with a business model, which is how are we going to pay for it? Oh, we can shoot up 5,000 satellites, recreate the internet in outer space. That's a trillion dollar a year business. So he backfills on the Neuralink company puts a chip in your brain so you can communicate with computers back and forth, high bandwidth. And uh, that, to him, is a way of keeping what he would call, or Asimov would call, symbiosis between Mm. us and our machines. Well, this is great, but what's the business model? And he says, okay. And it's just one day he's walking around where the pigs and monkeys are behind in Austin. And he says, I've got the business model. He calls everybody together, which is we'll use the chips to help people who are paralyzed walk or people with ALS or neurodegenerative diseases. And that will help pay our way. And they're joking about it around the conference table. And he does say, you know, this is not something complicated. You have to explain to people about communicating with computers or maybe Stephen Hawking can... He says... It's Jesus level. It's, my God, you can walk again. And it was half joking and half real. He has multiple personalities, one of which is messianic, another is similar, which is mission-driven. Humanity to Mars, humanity to Mars. Silly, goofy moments, immature. And then in um, engineering mode, where it's just... He'll look at a valve of a Raptor engine and for two hours be figuring out the methane leak. And then finally there's demon mode. And you can watch him switch. I thought one of the most interesting insights in the book, uh, given his image as this stubborn character, is you say he can actually change his mind. And you you mentioned that in the context of discussions about self-driving cars. Um, Would you say in addition, that he has evolved or matured to any significant degree? Or is that just a characteristic he has? No, I keep hoping. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, is that, the I, I, I have no dog in this hunt. I'm just no. a biographer. I'm not supposed yeah. to be rooting for him. 
But there is a part of me that says, yeah, could you calm down? Could you yeah. just mature a little bit? But he has an addiction. I'll just pick one example to tweeting, yes. you know, and tweeting conspiracy theories and weird things. And it only happens in those rare times when he gets into his dark demon mode late at night on Ambien and Red Bull and he embraces some Breakfast wacky... Breakfast of champions. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and he embraces some wacky, you know, Paul Pelosi or yeah. uh, Anthony Fauci. And then there was the one recently that people said was anti-Semitic, but it was so confusing, the conspiracy theory, I don't even think he quite... But it was just reposting just these threw it things. threw yeah. And his... At the end of the book... He has just start up, shot off Starship, the largest, here, hold up the back cover so people can see it, the largest movable object ever made by humans, and has gone up for three minutes, gotten into space, and then explodes. Typical of him, he's got to take risks. Yeah. He's going to make this. And so Kemble, his brother, Antonio Grassi, his other friends, sitting around, they're saying, if we could only take his Twitter feed away, if we could only put an impulse control button on him so he would not do these. And he even says, when asked, what's your biggest regret? He said, well, I keep shooting myself in the foot by yeah. tweeting. If you could take with an impulse control button that away, how great, or not how great, but it's how much better how he much would better be. How much better it would be. And I ask at the end of the book, would a Musk... It's such a beautiful thought, a Musk with an impulse control button. But, but would a Musk with an impulse control button... The Musk. Yeah, be shooting off rockets. Exactly. Uh, would a Musk with tightly bound guardrails be as effective as a Musk unhinged? And that's the type... That's Shakespeare does that in yes. Measure for Measure, others... Mariana's quote. Yeah, you're very good because I can never remember who says it. Uh, but I challenge you. Did you really read Measure for Measure? That is an almost no, I, impossible no, I, I, play I, to get through. I, I used no. Okay, I, okay. I used. I love Shakespeare. I used the that's... old school tool, Google. You know? Oh right, yeah, Call yeah. Old school. But what Mariana says at the end is, even the best are molded out of faults. Yeah, and that's true of Musk. It's interesting the breach with Jenna, his daughter, which causes him huge pain, and. It leads him to, it nurtures this loathing for what he calls the woke mind virus. Mm -hmm. How important is that loathing to his initial involvement and eventual acquisition of Twitter? It's very important. And it's more important to the tweets because buying Twitter was a problem, but continuing to send out these tweets is also a problem. I mean, 80% of his tweets are fine, but then he gets these dark ones. And that the tweets that caused him the problems recently, which I don't think had anything to do with uh, anti-Semitism. It was about wokeness. And by the way, I mean, we see it yesterday with in uh, uh, Holland, uh, the elections. He feels that the woke mind virus has allowed too much people coming, you know, immigration that then has festered into... Uh, anti-Israel demonstrations and people need to fight the woke mind virus. I, I, to say the obvious is not my political philosophy, but I know he's not only sincere about it, but too obsessed too with obsessed. that. 
I mean, it seems to me that there's a distinction, I mean, maybe it's an obvious point, really, but between Tesla and SpaceX, which, you know, we'll be talking, people will be talking about a century from now. Right. But it seems to have laboured under a misapprehension with Twitter that the public space, the public square, Mm -hmm. and democracy, for want of a better word, was just another engineering problem to be fixed. Was it just a, a category yeah, he mistake? He said that to me when we he were... He says it to you, doesn't he? When yeah. we were at the Texas uh, factory that was just being opened up, I said, why, why are you doing this? He said, well, it's an engineering thing. The product needs to be re-engineered. And I'm thinking to myself, Twitter's not an engineering product. It's an advertising medium. Yeah. It's there to gather eyeballs in a friendly spot so that Pepsi-Cola can put ads on it, and you, I didn't say this to him, you have no concept of human emotional playground. You were beaten up on the playground. Yeah. You know, you don't get what fun playgrounds are like, which is what Twitter's supposed to be. But then his brother, Kimball, also said, look, excuse my language here a bit, but he said, Twitter's just going to be a pimple on the ass of your legacy. Yeah, the important things you're doing is you're getting rockets that are reusable. You're getting astronauts into orbit, which NASA and Boeing can't do. You brought us into the age of electric vehicles, and if you keep it going, we'll have 10 trillion, I mean, 10 million Teslas per year being sold. It'll transform the planet. This is just a distraction. And a a big one. I want to just shift a little... um, A big one amongst people like... uh, Well, and for some of his time, although now he's... So focused on AI, yeah. he's not been back at Twitter headquarters. He's been serially focused on that. And I think for people like us, if I may say so, meaning those in the media who had our anointed blue checks and had our polite, you know, we think that's a big deal. I don't think most people think no, Twitter's sure that big of true. a deal. To, to, to look at your own uh, work, Walter, you, you, you start, I mean, you, there's a fascinating shift, I think, in subjects. So you start off, um, well, let's start with the wise men in 1986. Whoa, you go way back. Evan Thomas, okay? Yeah. A group of friends, Dean Ashton, Avril Harriman, Jordan Kennan. Then you do Kissinger, you do Franklin. Then you, you're looking at genius, Leonardo and Einstein. Recently, you've, there's been a, a shift of sorts to the gene-editing magnificence of Jennifer Doudna, the book The Innovators, Steve Jobs, and now Musk. And I'm wondering, I'm not saying this is conscious, but there's an argument that you're saying something in your work about power and the way we live now. Because you used to write, you know, rather than writing about a conventional head of government, as you were a while ago, or an advisor, or a, a, a mover and shaker like Kissinger, it's like power has moved house from institutions to networks and labs and the high-tech world. And I just wonder, have you been conscious of that as your career has moved? and I happen to think it's true. And what does that mean for us? When I was editor of Time in the 1990s, we got to choose person of the year. A nice little gimmick for, you know, worked well in the era, the century where magazines existed. Um, (laughs) And we always picked... uh, the president or the yeah. head of China, the president of China or the foreign minister or maybe the head of the Fed. And when I came in, I looked back and I realized we had never done the person who invented television. We had never done the person who in, uh, invented the transistor. 
All these people had a whole lot more impact than Paul Volcker or somebody yes. had. And I said, we're totally barking up the wrong tree because the people who actually ripple the surface of history with their fingers are not the prime ministers and foreign ministers and presidents who come and go. I mean, sometimes. And so I made it a conscious effort then that our person of the year was, uh, you know, Bill Gates at one point, Andy Grove at one point for bringing us in the era of microchips, Jeff Bezos, Dr. David Ho for the uh, antiviral cocktails he did. And each year we, I tried, Ted Turner at one point, who may not seem like a technologist, but by inventing cable oh, yeah. news, transformed our world a lot more than Cyrus Vance, or whoever yes. was Secretary of State at the time. So those were the people we picked as person of the year. And it occurred to me that most biographers write about Teddy Roosevelt far yes, too sure. often. And those are great people. But the people, Jennifer Doudna, who nobody had heard of almost when I started the book. Fortunately, she wins the Nobel Prize, yeah, right, she's... as the book coming out. So she's known now. By co-inventing with Emmanuel Charpentier and Julian Banfield, the tool called CRISPR that allows us to edit our own DNA. We've already now cured sickle cell because it's just a edit the DNA and it's fixed. Likewise, we're about to do it with ALS and Huntington's and Parkinson's disease. Soon you'll be able to, soon meaning 10, 20 years, design your babies so that you could say, all right, not only do I not want them to have sickle cells, but I want their cells to carry more oxygen so they will win the Tour de France. Or I want them to be a foot taller or blonder, or I want their sexual orientation, you know. Then you start going, uh-oh, where are oh, we going Where are we here? going here, yeah. Yeah, and we've seen you know, this yes. before. That will have, so, and it's a beautiful, interesting science, which became a lot more important because it's all about the forgotten molecule RNA, which, yes, which when they start focusing on it, turns out to be important because it can build yeah. spike proteins for us and make us uh, against viruses. I've gone on and on, but I think what Steve Jobs did by bringing us into the era where you could take a computer out of the box, plug it in, and it says hello. And you can put a thousand songs in your pocket and you can have a phone that has all these apps. And that changes the world so much more. And this is, this is brilliant, innovative genius mixed with arrogance and problems. And so I find these people are more important to be writing about. Musk amongst them. Absolutely. You... Quote Yoel Roth, who was the head of trust and safety at Twitter X. He left in November 1922. And he, you quote him as saying, people want me to say I hate him, Musk. But he's much more complicated, which I suppose is what makes him interesting. He's a bit of an idealist, right? That makes it hard to villainize him. Does that reflect your view of him? Yes, it reflects my view of him because that's what a whole lot of people told me. I mean, you got, as you know, Yoel Roth, head of trust and safety, is able to survive three or four weeks after Musk buys it, but then they have this huge falling out because Musk... And so I'm trying to interview everybody Musk has fired, everybody, you know, has had a falling out, and thinking I'm going to... And all of the uh, ugly parts of it are in the book. I sugarcoat nothing. But it is surprising to me that the same thing about Musk happened about Steve Jobs, 
which is he, people say he drove me nuts, he drove me crazy. He also drove me to do things I didn't know I could do and I wouldn't have given up in the world having worked for him. Just recently, there's a guy in the book, I don't know if you remember, Andy Krebs, a yeah. tall, good-looking North Carolina kid in charge of the launch pad in Boca Chica, Texas. And late one Friday night, we're walking around, and Musk goes into demon mode. You can feel the clouds coming off the Gulf of Mexico because there are only four or five people working on the launch pad. And he starts yelling at Andy Krebs. I mean, not yelling because it's this cold anger. And saying, why aren't there more people? And Andy's saying, it's like near midnight on a Friday and we don't have a launch schedule. And Musk does what he does at such things. It's calls a surge, which means by the next day, 200 people have to be working. They have to fly in from yeah. California, Florida. So just show we can get this rocket stacked, even though there's not an urgency, but we have to feel there's an urgency. And uh, poor Andy kind of survives it, but in the end he leaves. He can't take it, right? And he's had a kid, and it's like Musk is just too much. And I write about how these people can't take it. I mean, Yoel Roth could, but Andy could. So I'm in Los Angeles three weeks ago doing a book talk, and just like this, there's a signing. All of a sudden, I see this tall, good-looking <laughs> North. I said, Krebs, what are you doing here? He said, well, you know, I moved back to Los Angeles, but I didn't want to, I was getting burned out, but now I'm getting bored, and I realized I'd rather be burned out than bored, so I've asked Elon if I could come back, because it's the most important mission in the world. Hey there. I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So, is dysfunctionality a precondition of greatness? No, but there is a non-zero uh, correlation. Um, it's not trivial, the correlation. Uh, you can look at uh, disruption, uh, happens to be disruptive. And whether it's Bill Gates in the early days of Microsoft, or Bezos at Amazon, or Page and Sergey at uh, Google, or uh, Zuckerberg, Zuckerberg. At, yeah, or uh, Steve Jobs, who gets kicked out, or uh, Musk. These are people who are not, uh, who are very strong cups of tea and very <laughs> disruptive. Now, I don't think you have to be that way. Jennifer Dowden is the nicest person in the world, and she does something when she has anybody who wants a job at one of her companies in the top level, or even a research assistant in the lab. Everybody at the company, everybody at the lab is a, should meet the person, and then they all decide, will it be collegial and fit in? I, I was talking to Musk about that, and he gave that snort, and he said, collegiality is our enemy. <laughs> we don't want people to try to please each other. We want, uh, we want people to be willing to throw their colleagues under the bus if something's going wrong. Yes. And uh, that's a definition of a jerk. Or in England, you have a technical term that begins with A, which we don't use. But do you have to be that way? 
There was a Wired magazine cover story when the Jobs book came out that said, do you have to be an asshole? Yes. And the answer, John, I, I try not to put my, I try not to preach in the book. I'll let you all no, make you that don't. decision. But I do let Yoel tell it or yeah. others. And one of them is John McNeil said, I, I think that's the price we had to pay in order to get us into the world of electric vehicles, that he just had to be that way. Yeah. He had to break everything. And he says, and it's a high price to pay. And then McNeil says to me, and I don't think it's a price I would want to pay. <laughs> and that's what y'all have to decide. Everybody is, yes, sometimes if you're this way, you can get us in the world of electric vehicles, but you can probably get us there gently and more calmly. Woz told me when I started Steve Jobs, you have to, Steve, Steve Wozniak yes. said, you have to ask him, did he have to be such an asshole? Yeah. And at the very end, three or four years later, Steve is dying. He's got two turtlenecks on because he's so skinny and freezing on stage trying to do the second iPhone. And Woz is in the wings, you know, with me. I said, Woz, what's the answer? He said, well, if I'd run Apple, I would have been nicer. I would have been friendlier, more collegial. Everybody would have got stock options. We would have made it like a family. And Waz is a wonderful teddy bear of a guy. And then he looks at me and smiles and said, and if I had run Apple, we never would have gotten the iPhone. We never would have done the Mac. Uh, I don't necessarily give you the answer in the book of, no. is this necessary to have done this way? Personally, it would be too high of a price for me to pay. Yeah. But I don't want to be the preacher here. Sure. I want to be the storyteller and let each person say, I get it, I understand it, and I accept or I reject it. My final impertinent question before we get some questions mm. from the floor is, um, who's your next subject? Yeah, I, I think I'm going to go back in history. I haven't decided. I have three people from Simon & Schuster in the front row. <laughs> and Eagerly they have not yet bought this book. So... Uh, I really, as I said, believe in the people who are disruptive in science and bring us into a new era. Because I think we who are not scientists undervalue technology and science, as I said, as a person of the year. And into the 20th century, the, one of the people most responsible for the key concept, which is that chemistry is basically physics, it's all about uh, electrons going around a nucleus and how they radiate, comes up with the name radiation, wins the Nobel Prize for chemistry, first woman ever to win a Nobel. Marie Curie then goes on to figure out how to fill in the periodic table, wins the Nobel Prize in physics, has a wonderfully interesting, uh, she's finally made a professor at the Sorbonne, but they won't even allow her in the French Academy because it's all male, so she can't present her own papers. When her husband, Pierre, dies, partly of radiation poisoning and being hit by a trolley, she, a few years later, starts having a, an affair with Paul Langevin, his student, who is a friend of Einstein's. And the love letters, uh, Paul Langevin's wife finds him. It becomes tabloid fodder, just as she wins her second Nobel. And they tell her not to come to Stockholm because it's too much of a scandal. And she basically says, if I were a man having an affair, you would not have told me that. And she goes to Stockholm and accepts the award. So she's an interesting figure. That's a great subject. Yeah. And Simon and Schuster, I'm sure, are very relieved to hear that. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, no, they keep wanting me to do Sam Altman or something. No, 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 no. don't do Sam Altman. <laughs> Not yet, anyway. Um, we, I'd like to take questions, if I may, uh, in groups of three. Please keep them brief, because we only have um, a little less than half an hour. So if you put your hands up, and then I can... Yes, just there. Fascinating to hear everything this evening. I, I'm curious, Walter, after spending so much time with, with Elon, do you actually come away liking him as a character? And my second question is, um, who does he talk to about all of his businesses? Because there's so many. Who does he go to for advice or who does he brainstorm with? Okay, let's get... Uh, there's a question there. A gentleman with glasses, just there. And then a question at the back as well. And then we'll get uh, Walter to answer. Thank you so much. Um, just a very brief question, but what are... If they are, and you don't have to give the details, but what are the, what are the areas that Elon Musk would, would never accept to explore with you, or just to like what, what where the not great but black areas where he wouldn't go, and if they are, what uh, would they be? And second question, very briefly, what which actor would you be in a film <laughs> about Elon, Elon Musk? Um, Having, a few, having read a few of your books now, I'm actually really interested in you more so than the subjects of the books. I'd love to hear a little bit about your relationship with writing specifically, maybe in the early days of how you first started to write and sharing your works with others, and sort of how you came to see writing as being something in your life. Great. All right, so on the question I often get, which is, did you like him? As I said, there, or as Grimes says, because I always try to let others say it as well, there are many, many Elons that I like, and there are one or two that come across him, and they don't like me, and I don't like him. And so there are times when I found him totally mesmerizing, funny, charming, and also visionary and mission-driven, and uh, I, I respected that and was even, you know, almost mesmerized by it. But there were times he was very off-putting, and I try to put that in the book. Every story is there unvarnished, so you see, and the book is very short chapters because he's always hopping around. I want you to feel what it's like to be alongside him. I guess you don't mesmerize easy, Walter, is my, my. <laughs> I, I don't know, do you know where the word comes from? Mesmerian. Mesmerian. Yeah, and Benjamin Franklin, my old friend, was yes. appointed into a commission to see if mesmerization yep. was a real phenomenon or was it yeah. just a delusion. And um, that's what he did as a scientist here. So, go. pretty good tangent, right? So, sorry, go back uh, to the inventory. Circle of friends, he does not have enough people around him who say no, but he has a circle of old friends, many of whom go back to the days when he started X.com, which became PayPal 20 years ago. You know, David Sachs, and then Antonio Gracias, uh, Peter Thiel. Uh, he also has women, which is important. The longest standing employee he has is Gwen Shotwell, who's the president of SpaceX. And she knows how to say no to him, which most of the men around him don't. Likewise, he's brought in Linda Yaccarino. We can look at our phones and see if she's still running Twitter every hour, <laughs> I worry. But she has been pushing back on him. He's not as good as he should be in having a circle who can say no to him. But eventually, the no sinks in. They learn how to, for example, he... Uh, 
I was in a meeting, and I was surprised he let me in, about what the next Tesla's going to be. And he wanted it to be a robo-taxi with no steering wheel. He said, we have to force the future to happen, self-driving. And I watch as Drew Baglino and Franz von Holthaus and others slowly turn them around to get to what will be the $25,000 car. Uh, speaking of which, it's like what was off limits. I, after that meeting, the lawyers, the people at Tesla saying, that was off limits. You're not supposed to know what the next, he said, nope. I told him nothing's off limits. And so it's in the book, even as he moves self-driving to being pure artificial intelligence machine learning, which will be FSD, full self-driving 12, uh, that uh, was not off limits. He was astonishingly transparent, even in personal yeah. things. With the only things that became off limits were things I decided to leave off limits with my wife's help, which is he has five teenage children, leave aside X and the younger ones, and then Jenna. But there were a lot of things about those kids who are an amazing set of kids, but they are also Elon Musk kids, so they have their own core. Muskery. And at a certain point, there were things in the book about them and about their relationship with their father. And my wife said, if they're under the age of 18, yeah. you have to balance how important it is for the reader to know versus how much pain it's going to cause to an innocent kid. So I called Griffin, who is the oldest, along with Jenna, they were twins, and said, okay. He said, you can put me in the book and all these stories, but Kai and Damien are just freaked out about this book. Yeah. You can put them in, but please leave out some of these stories. And I did. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so, I'm sorry, Off Limits actor. I am not very good at Hollywood stuff. Um, I don't know much about, I, well, I embarrass myself sometimes on movies. However, I care about directors. And when there was a, some competition for who was going to get the rights to make this book, I did check with Mosk. I said, okay. And the director I wanted was Darren Aronofsky. And he's going to be, the, and he's directing. In fact, he was down at the Starship launch last week. Uh, but, so he's already researching That's it. That's an excellent choice. And he gets to choose the actors. Uh, not that it matters at all, but of all the actors who play very smart people, there are two I really like. One is Benedict Cumberbatch, because in the imitation game as yes. Turing, he was great. And then Matt Damon, you know. So... But Darren Aronofsky knows I know nothing about <laughs> movies. And he, when I started to say, you know, it could be this actor, he said, don't worry, I'll pick the actor. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, as for my getting into the world of writing, when I was very young, growing up in Louisiana, there was an uncle in the family, meaning he had married somebody in the family, we called him Uncle Walker. His name was Walker Percy. You may have heard of him. He was a novelist. But I was 12, and we'd go uh, hunting and fishing with his daughter, Anne, and water skiing. And I'd say, Anne, what does your dad do? He's always sitting on the dock drinking bourbon and eating hogshead cheese. And she said, well, he's a writer. Not like 12, and I'm going, writer? I mean, I knew you could be an engineer like my dad or a fisherman or a doctor. 
And then the moviegoer comes out, his first novel, and I try to read it, and it's got, it's really philosophical. So I say, Uncle Walker, at one point I'm sitting with him, I said, explain to me, what are you trying to tell us? What are you trying to preach in this book? And he said to me, there are two types of people who come out of Louisiana, preachers and storytellers. He said, for heaven's sake, be a storyteller. This world has far too many preachers. And so I set about becoming a narrative storyteller like you and I in the old days of journalism yeah. where you weren't supposed to be preaching. You didn't have an agenda. Get out of the and way of the story. And I have a yeah. card above my computer. That's my mantra, which is whenever I'm trying to figure out how does he fire people or is he me or has his mind, it's let me tell you a story. And I try whenever I want to convey something to say, what's the best story in my reporting that conveys it? So I let the reader decide in this book, was it worth it? Was he good? What do I feel about him? Do I like him? Or I, meaning the reader, like him or not? Uh, but I try to be a storyteller, and that's what got me into journalism and then writing. Thank goodness for that. Um, let's have three more. Are there any I can't see from here? Any on the balcony? Yeah. That, thank you so much, Walter. That was really inspiring. And the book is very inspiring, too. I do have two questions, so you can pick one or combine them. Sorry. <laughs> Code violation. <laughs> so, okay. Code violation. The first one is, I feel like from the book and from this talk, we get glimpses of the kind of world Musk wants to live in, like his utopia. And I'm curious, what is his dystopia? What is... What's his room 101? What's the world that he would absolutely hate to live in that would be unbearable? That's the first question. The second question is about what he cares about. I'm really curious. Again, I get this feeling that he does care about humanity and he cares about you know, consciousness going beyond the earth. But I'm curious whether he cares about things like there not being any homeless people in the world or free education for all. Where's his moral imagination at? What does he care about the good of all people? And then the gentleman there. Yes, uh, the blue shirt on. That's, that's right. Thank you very much. You've profiled so many amazing minds. If you had to summarize the key attributes that make them so special, what would they be? Thank you. And then this gentleman here. Thank you. Thanks. I, I haven't finished a book yet, Walter, but... Um, I'd like to know the, how he's managed to navigate China and all the problems there that are inherent for most other Western businesses. Good question. That's it? That's it? For now, yeah. Okay, for now. Uh, his dystopia is a world in which, and he worries about it every day now and has for about eight years, in which artificial intelligence turns on us. Uh, he's obviously worried about human consciousness not surviving, but he feels we're at an existential threat level uh, with AI, and it's going to be hard to keep the guardrails on it. Uh, in terms of what he cares about, I've said the three missions of multi-planetary uh, space exploration in general. He said, and you talk about, say, homelessness or many other things, 
He, he's worked up about these things, but he says we can't get up every morning and only look at the very immediate problem. So maybe we can and maybe we should, but he doesn't. He said there has to be something that gets us up in the morning that's the grand aspiration, and that's why we need to become, once again, a space adventuresome uh, species yeah. so we're not just mired in Ukraine war and congressional hearings and things. Uh, that's not to uh, say that that's a good thing. I mean, I perhaps it would be great if he cared about more specific but problems. Him. But he cares about the future of humanity intensely more than he cares about humans, if you know what I mean, Randall. <laughs> and this is Einstein. This yes, is Steve Jobs. Yes, this yes. is many others, which is you have this vision. And he says if you get too worried about the people around you liking you, you're going to lose sight of the missions for humanity that you should be on, which gets to that question of what things that people have in common. Most of the people I've written about have been this sense of grand mission, not a sense of I want to be popular, I want people to like me, I want to like them, but I've got a grand mission, and it all starts with curiosity, whether it's Jennifer being curious about why bacteria have clustered repeated sequences in their genetic code, and then saying there must be some grand evolution, discovering how you can use that to edit genes and fight viruses. Uh, and there's a curiosity that even you know, Leonardo has in his notebook, describe the tongue of the woodpecker. I mean, you don't need that to paint the bird and the baptism of Christ. What do you get, a woodpecker? I mean, it's, but that curiosity, why is the sky blue? Today, for the first time in a couple of days, the sky was blue here. But nobody looked up and said, I wonder why it's blue. In Einstein's notebook, it's why is the sky blue? Marie Curie, and you discover things we should know that are beautiful, but we most of us don't, which is how does light get scattered by atoms and molecules? So a curiosity leading to higher passion is what they share. Um, China. China. He believes that until a few weeks ago when all of a sudden the U.S. policy changed, (laughs) that we were being too confrontational with China, that we're dependent on China, that if if we provoke or have a crisis on Taiwan, we're toast because we have no microchips. And he goes to China a few times, just as do most American industrialists, or from Bob Iger to Tim Cook. And he says that we should be in competition with China, which means we got to out-innovate them, we got to out-educate, we have to do all those things. We don't have to go around needlessly provoking China. And so he's been pushing, and then suddenly there's been a pivot in the U.S. administration uh, of being uh, more, well, the meeting between Biden and Xi, and I'm not sure David Cameron has been on both sides of this. I'm not sure what your current administration will do. Uh, depends what time of day it is, I think. Yeah, right. <laughs> okay, well, we've got time for uh, one last uh, round of questions. Walter, I'm intrigued hey. by Elon's relationship with his mother. You talk, we've talked about his father, his completely yeah. dysfunctional relationship with his father. Did you get any time alone with her to talk to her? And did you notice any kind of behavioral traits in her that he might have inherited? The sort of nature versus nurture debate. Walter, you mentioned that there were no red lines or sort of conditions on what you could write about in the book. But I wanted to get a sense of whether um, you thought 
Musk was nervous about how he'd be portrayed by you mm-hmm. and whether he's read the book. Mm-hmm. And then, there. thank you. Uh, so, uh, my name is Per Wimmer. I'm a future astronaut and obviously share the passion for space. Good. And um, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, so we used to meet up, uh, Elon and I, and a guy called Richard Garriott in, in the Caribbean when Elon was actually taking a break from time to time. And I remember he took his, his Lotus or the first test of sports and stuff. And we were, we were talking and he, 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 that time he was sort of striking me as being very geeky, super smart, mm-hmm. never bet against him, even if the odds were 1090. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was not particularly a public media person or speaker, etc. Mm-hmm. Fast forward to today, well, you can't open any social media. Not, I mean, he obviously mm-hmm. owns X, but beyond that, he's, he's all over the media and stuff. So my question to you is, who runs his media and how important is it to him in terms of the personality? And, yeah. and, and He has a, I'll go in reverse order now. He does have this kind of superhero complex. And he, even though he's not a practiced public speaker, even though he's not very good on stage, he is enjoying you know, having platforms and speaking out and being uncontrolled when he does so, totally unfiltered, which gets to why he wanted me to write the book. I mean, if you're really shy, you're not going to ask me to write a biography. And the fact that he's unfiltered makes him awesomely transparent, and he loves that concept. Open source code, he wants to be open source, totally transparent. And uh, the question of whether... Uh, he didn't put anything off limits. Was he nervous about things? He was remarkably non-nervous. People kept glancing at times as if I were at this meeting and he was doing things. And he just seemed to relish uh, being totally open about things. Was it another risk? Did they, did they enjoy yeah, the risk? Yeah, I, I think, but I don't think he saw it as a danger. I mean, uh, I could have devastated him. I could have canonized him. Instead, he's both demonized and canonized in the book. And I just think it's part of the game. It's the next level of the game. And I had to worry about the Heisenberg principle, which is by observing the particle of an effect, either its momentum or its um, positioning. And people kept saying... Did you? No. I mean, I'd be in rooms and he would be so unvarnished and people afterwards would say god we were hoping because you've been around him that maybe he'd calm down a bit but you have no effect on him at all um although he did uh, he did te- he texted you didn't he quite a lot i mean that oh he texted me quite a bit um even when they had geofenced off part of the crimea a uh, part of crimea from uh so that the ukraine ukrainians could not use starlink, starlink yeah to do a sneak attack on the Russian fleet there. Uh, I'd been with him for a few weeks. I'd finally got back home to New Orleans. I'm at my high school football, and he's texting me uh, that they're trying to do this sneak attack. And he just wants to always be open about things. And I was very, I drew a line, which is, I don't give you, I don't give advice. I'm not a player in this. I'm not like Heisenberg, I'm not like Schrodinger observing the cat dead or alive. Um, Especially about a war. A war. And so occasionally I ask Socratic questions yeah. like, have you talked to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff? Have yeah. you talked to the national... It's... And he, we talk about it a bit. And then he does. He calls General Milley and he calls Jake Sullivan. 
And they decide to transfer Starlink control, some of it, you know, of at least 100 of them, to the CIA and the U.S. military. So yes. he said, I don't even know why I'm in this war. I invented Starlink so people could watch Netflix and chill, not get into a war with sneak attacks. So he's self-aware, but nothing was off limits. And I tried very hard not to affect his behavior, but only ask Socratic questions. And then to get to May, May Musk was the one who said, the danger for Elon is that he becomes his father. And throughout the book, I talked to her hundreds of times, um, most recently last week, uh, uh, when it gets to Elon, I mean, she has 400 sticky notes where in the book of things she wants to talk to me about. As for Elon, as to whether he's read the book, I saw him, uh, as I said, he didn't get the opportunity to read it before it was published. I never sent him a copy before it was published. And right before it's published, I was in Austin doing Lex Fridman's podcast, and he came and joined us for dinner. And in the parking lot afterwards, he said, should I read the book? I said, jokingly, I said, no, no, don't read the book. <laughs> and I, um, I guess I can say that, I know it's uh, I saw Tallulah Riley on this trip, and as you know, Elon was over here for the prime minister, and uh, he had talked to her, and she had said, did you read the book? And he said, no, Walter told me not to read it, so I didn't read it. <laughs> um, I know he has, actually, yeah. but, but I think it's good for him and good for me that he can we say no. Yeah. But uh, May Musk is a guiding force in this book. And very interesting. We have one, one more time for one more question. Um, yes, just down here. Firstly, uh, his ability to maintain meaningful relationships. I mean, you, you talk about his daughter, Jenna, but I've um, read that he said something like, uh, well, you don't win them all. So it was almost like a business transaction as he was referring to his daughter. And secondly, you say that he um, no longer served couches at Larry Page's, but is that because of the you know, alleged affair with Sergey's wife? No, it's because of their falling out over AI, and it happened well before that. And... Um, I think there it says is a... so much that they fall out over AI rather than someone else's... <laughs> well, Larry is not, Larry's not Sergey. I think there's a mix-up <laughs> with the question. But uh, Larry, the falling out, was over open AI yes. and AI. Musk has intense fear of loneliness, intense relationships with his children. But as I say, all of his relationships tend to be dramatic. He is as if he is his own character in a video game. And operatically so. Well. Yes, yes. And um, if there's not drama, he's not calm. Which is a very odd thing for an engineer. Right. And when he becomes an engineer, like the quarter of the time when he's in engineering mode, take the night that the Twitter board decided to accept his offer. The whole world is a bit abuzz that, you know, bust to buy Twitter. Yeah. And he goes down to Boca Chica, the small town where they have the SpaceX factory and launch pad. And there's a bunch of engineers and they have a problem with the methane leak, like I mentioned earlier. Every one of the engineers in that conference room, all they're thinking about is he just bought Twitter and they want to talk about it. He goes into engineering mode, has no emotions at all. He's almost like robotic. 
And for two hours, they're going over the material properties, both of Inconel, stainless steel, the other materials in the Raptor engine, whether the heat shield does things. And he cuts to the chase in two hours this complex engineering thing without letting his mind deviate a millisecond to thinking about Twitter or thinking about full self-driving. And it's that type of maniacal engineering focus where he gets, as you say, out of drama mode and he almost becomes Spock-like in analyzing a problem. But of course, Spock is only half Vulcan. Yeah, and, the other half. Right. <laughs> Sorry, that was a very geeky point. <laughs> um, I know, but, Musk is only half human. And he's only half human. So yeah, yeah. I can Musk feel often <laughs> believes, he says, I sometimes think that maybe I'm an avatar in some overlord simulation yeah. where they are making me play each level of the game. He probably is, yeah. yeah. Um, Walter, thank you so much. Hey, well, thanks, please, Matt. Please, please join me in thanking the great Walter Isaacson. Thank you. This episode starred Walter Isaacson and was presented by Matthew Dancona. The series is made by me and Nicole Wong, and our editor is John Doughty. Walter's biography of Elon Musk, which is simply called Elon Musk, is out now. Until next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening. <laughs>